This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Gianna Ramirez. And I'm Milian Cordova. We want to remind you that this program is being broadcast on stolen Indigenous land. Tonight, we talk with Leon Howard, the legal director for the ACLU of New Mexico, or American Civil Liberties Union, about Operation Legend and the work of the ACLU. We'll also hear from Yolanda Montoya Cordova, Albuquerque Public Schools Board of Education member. She will talk with us about the APS school reentry plan and what will be different for students as we live and learn through COVID-19. As always, we have some great music for you, starting with All Right by Kendrick Lamar. Nazareth, I'm up, homie, you up, but if God got us, then we gon' be all right. And when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Leon Howard is the legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU of New Mexico. Mr. Howard is passionate about protecting the rights of all underrepresented people who are victims of governmental and institutional abuses of power. Now, GJ member Uzair Hamad speaks with Leon Howard in this interesting two-part interview. This is Uzair Hamad with Generation Justice, and I am speaking with Leon Howard, the legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, of New Mexico. Mr. Howard, welcome to Generation Justice. Uzair, it's uh, an honor to be here with you today and to be with the Generation Justice team and to have met you all here today. This is a tremendous program, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for being here. So first off, tell us more about yourself. Yeah, so uh, again, my name is Leon Howard. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I went to Wilson Middle School, Highland High School, um, UNM for my undergraduate studies, and then subsequently to um, UNM Law School. Number one thing that defines me these days is being a father. Uh, I have a two-year-old baby girl named Zuri an eight-year-old boy named Damon. Um, they, you know, keep me occupied. The toughest job I have. Um, second to that, I'm the legal director at the ACLU of New Mexico, where I help uh, manage our litigation docket and direct our legal department in the, the cases that we bring. Before joining the ACLU, I was a civil rights attorney in private practice, and um, a lot of my work uh, is around policing and racial discrimination. Thank you for that. You have a background in teaching law from a social justice perspective, where I understand you taught social justice lawyering. Please tell us about that. Yeah, that was uh, an interesting and fun class. And in, in addition to the social justice lawyering class I taught, I also teach uh, race and the law in main campus. And those classes really, if I was to boil it down, um, is to get uh, young people interested at an early age 
and in an early point in their academic careers to start thinking about um, work in the social justice realm. While the, the, the course content is important, it's really about exposing uh, students at UNM to people doing social justice work uh, who are already professionals. It's not only lawyers that we're interested in, but uh, you know, executive directors at nonprofits, social workers, you name it. Uh, I try to get those people into the classroom to meet students. That's what the essence of it is, but it's also important to me to uh, have cultural humility in teaching those courses and to expose students at a basic level to the foundations of the law and, and to, to be frank, um, to make sure students know about how the legal system has been premised in white supremacy. Definitely very important in today's world. So thank you for that. Give us an understanding of the work of the ACLU of New Mexico and why it's important in these times. Yes, yeah, so uh, the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico is the largest civil rights organization in the country. Uh, they, we have 54 affiliates um, all across the country, including one affiliate in, in Puerto Rico, uh, a national office um, that uh, works with all of the affiliates. And here in New Mexico, um, we are known for our civil rights advocacy in general, we have three primary areas that we're focusing on now, immigrant rights, criminal system reform, and women's access to uh, reproductive health services and protecting their right to make own decisions about their bodies and protecting abortion rights. Um, in addition to those three primary areas, we also always have cases that involve free speech, LGBTQ rights, privacy rights, um, and just about anything you can think of under the Bill of Rights where we're usually involved in some other of those areas. I'd like to talk about Operation Legend. Tell us about this federal action as it relates to the civil rights and liberties of Albuquerque residents. Thank you for that question, and, and it's a very hot topic right now, and the um, short answer is we don't know much about Operation Legend. Our organization has been in touch with the city of Albuquerque, who also doesn't have very much information from the federal government around Operation Legend. What I can tell you is some of the language coming out of the federal administration has caused uh, concern and in some instances panic uh, for um, people in Albuquerque, particularly when you see the language coming out of the administration and then you turn on your TV and see what's happening in Portland. Right now, it does not appear as if the federal agents were sent into Albuquerque um, to quell or respond to any protest activity. What we are hearing from the United States Attorney in New Mexico, uh, John Anderson, is that these officers uh, are coming to Albuquerque 
to supplement ongoing joint task forces that are involved in various levels of crime fighting. Those joint task forces, what that means is that we have local entities like APD, Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, cooperating and collaborating with federal agents, whether it's ATF, ICE, the FBI, CIA, ATF, those are kind of what joint task forces are. And so my primary concern now that it appears, and we don't want to take this for granted, but it appears as if federal agents are not coming to Albuquerque for, to respond to protest activity, but it's just the assuming that they are here for these joint task forces. We know historically that those are problematic for our communities in Albuquerque, particularly our communities of color. You don't have to look too far back to see that there was an ATF task force here in Albuquerque that resulted in 104 people being arrested. 28% of those people were African-American in a city that only has 3% African-American people. And so when you dig into what the work that the ATF was doing in that uh, operation, they were doing things like going into halfway houses where people who are recovering from addiction live and uh, infiltrating the halfway houses with drugs and, and you know, uh, breaking people down who are really trying to recover from addiction. We recently worked on a case that was a part of a joint task force where BCSO pulled over our client, who is an African-American woman, three times in 28 days on the same stretch of road in I-40. We, in discovery in that case, learned that BCSO was pulling people over on I-40, Black people at a disproportionate rate. Again, we were find, found like something like 17 or 18% of their stops were Black people when, uh, when again, the population of Black people in our city is, is 3%. And so the real concern for me with bolstering those joint task forces is that it's going to result in similar policing where our communities of color are being targeted at, at disproportionate rates, arrested at disproportionate rates, and continuing a cycle of punishing, incarcerating black and brown people at a time where, you know, the government says this is all about fighting crime, but how long do we have to go down this road of incarceration and punishment before we learn that that does nothing to reduce crime in our communities and really start focusing on rehabilitation efforts and more holistic ways to get to the root causes as opposed to bolstering police activity, hiring more police results in more people of color getting arrested and the crime rate stays where it's at. Long-winded answer, but thank you for sticking with me, Zara.
Yeah, no, thanks for that detailed response. I think that's definitely important for our community to know. Talk to us about the root causes of crime in our community. Yeah, so what, so we, we know that um, crime is, is generally driven, or, well, driven and manufactured. So you can look back to directly to the war on drugs to link that to our high incarceration rates in this community. And so when the war on drugs occurred, there's disproportionate sentencing of, of black people and pe people of color for similar activity as their white counterparts. There's health data that will tell us that 13% of drug users in our country are black people. And that matches the percentage of black people in our country as a whole. But when you look at the data of people who are incarcerated in our country for drug possession, you're talking 50% of people in our country who are incarcerated for possession are black. And so we just know that when we talk about crime, some of that is completely manufactured by the war on drugs and how we view drug possession in our, our community. Uh, when you move to more traditional crimes that we, you know, property crimes and crimes of violence, we know that by and large, those uh, types of crime are involve people with mental health issues, involve people with addiction issues, and we also know when those people end up incarcerated, they are in a position where they go to be punished in our penal system, and there are no services in our jails and prisons to rehabilitate people. And so we have a, a huge population of people incarcerated in our country who are receiving no services and uh, get out of jail or prison if they're lucky enough with no kind of treatment uh, of their underlying causes that led them into the circumstances uh, of going to jail or prison in the first place. How is this operation driven by the narrative of crime in the U.S.? When you hear the language coming out of the White House and the fact that our, our local sheriff, Manny Gonzalez, went to meet with the U.S. Attorney Bill Barr and, and took a trip to the White House. That is, to me, you know, a last-ditch effort at fear-based kind of uh, politics. And it really, looking at the issues uh, that lead to Albuquerque's crime rate have nothing to do with needing more police in our community. Um, we, we also look at the rate of addiction, our education system, our health system, our housing situation. Like those are really root causes that lead uh, people into unfortunate circumstances. And if we could really change that narrative, to bolstering, focusing on our children, bolstering our education system, bolstering our health system, all of these systems that are failing people of color, 
and really putting our resources into those systems as opposed to policing and um, incarceration, I think, you know, we'll see a more healthy community. And I think what we need as, as kind of a, a base of voters is to have patience with people who are in office who are really committed to those systems as opposed to just going for the catchy crime narratives that you see in the media and that get people uh, worked up and in fear about crime. This is Generation Justice. Now, let's listen to the second part of our interview with Leon Howard the legal director of ACLU of New Mexico. Beyond the 35 Operation Legend agents, what other Department of Homeland Security agents are in New Mexico? So I don't want to misspeak, but I believe that under DHS you have ICE, Immigration, Customs and Enforcement Agents, and we have CBP, uh, Customs and Border Patrol in our community. And, um, you know, one thing that we're doing here in Albuquerque recently, or I mean here in New Mexico, is filed a case against ICE uh, for some of the, the tactics that they use, arresting people in and around courthouses. That has a negative effect, effect on our entire judicial system because our immigrant communities are afraid to go to court, whether they're there for business, whether they're there as a, to be a witness, whether they're there to support family members. And our courts are supposed to be a place of, of justice and uh, equal treatment. And um, when we have people in our community that are afraid to ask, access the court system, then it breaks everything down. You'll see in that case, we are representing district attorney's office um, in Santa Fe, We're representing several community organizations that work with immigrant populations, as well as the public defender's office. So you see this like, and, and the attorney general in, in New Mexico. So you see this medley of plaintiffs who are on different sides of the criminal system coming together for an important case to prevent our federal government from getting into and obstructing justice in our state courts. What is different about our community having encounters with the federal agents versus the Albuquerque Police Department? That's a great question, Uzair. Our city police don't have the greatest reputation, historically speaking. The DOJ is instituted an action against our police department for a pattern and practice of Albuquerque Police Department using excessive force. Now, putting that aside, the city of uh, Albuquerque has entered into an agreement with the federal government with the help of many community organizations getting us to this point of really reforming our local police department. 
Uh, I would have to say that I believe there's still a lot of work to do uh, to change the culture, but I have to give the city of Albuquerque credit in that there are people in our administration and in uh, APD who are committed to the hard work of changing the culture in our police department. When you bring in feds into that equation, they are not bound by the efforts that the city of Albuquerque has made to uh, ensure that the citizens of Albuquerque are being policed in a constitutional manner and in a manner that uh, takes into account best practices. One tangible, uh, real legal way that that impacts everyday New Mexicans is our state constitution has a Fourth Amendment analog that provides greater protection under many circumstances for New Mexicans that federal officers do not have to adhere to. So you're talking about uh, APD and other local police departments have got to comply with our state constitution, whereas federal agents are still operating under federal standards that do not protect New Mexicans in the same way. Thank you for that. What do community members need to know to protect themselves, especially in an encounter with law enforcement at this time? What are some tools or resources that you can direct us to? That's a great question. So I'll start with the mobile justice app that our organization, ACLU of New Mexico, if you Google ACLU of New Mexico and mobile justice app, it should come up. And that is an app that allows you to record police activity through the app. And why that's beneficial is the footage goes directly onto our protected server. And so any sort of uh, thing that can happen to your phone in a, a circumstance that may get out of hand with the phone being broken or confiscated by police officers, all the footage you record gets stored on our server. So if the phone gets damaged or lost, we still have that evidence. It's important for people to just generally know their rights during protests during these times. Things like staying in, in public property, on sidewalks, streets, those are generally uh, forums that are uh, protected under our First Amendment. You know, if you're picketing or protesting on private property, the owners of that property can ask people to move and ask the police to help confiscate people from private property. And the other thing I would say, it's completely legal to record, photograph police activity uh, so long as you're not obstructing um, their investigation. And we have cases like that and officers might not like that they're being recorded and officers should not retaliate against citizens who are uh, recording interactions from a safe distance. Thank you for that. Is there anything else that you would like to add? You know, um, there's a, a couple of things to end with and just reemphasize the importance of alternative measures and so when you hear people talk about defunding the police department, 
um, it's important that that narrative doesn't get co-opted into, you know, people advocating against police or saying that police are not necessary. It's what we talked about earlier in this conversation about all of these systems needing more resources and having a long-term vision of what that could look like on the back end in terms of making a safer community. The second thing is because I've had this opportunity to visit with all of you young folks is the legal profession in and of itself. The legal profession nationwide is 85% white. And so what does that mean when we talk about diversity, when we talk about the legal system? When you have a profession that is as important as the legal, uh, legal system being 85% white, um, that means that it is not very likely that somebody who comes into uh, a person of color that comes into contact with the legal system will be represented by somebody who can identify with their client's background. The other thing that that's important is when you think about the criminal system and you think about the health care system, you think about the education system, you think about the housing system, attorneys have their fingerprints all over all of those systems. It's easy when you say the criminal system when you're talking judges, prosecutors, um, defense attorneys, you name it, but attorneys help set education policy. They help, help set health policy. They help set uh, housing regulation. And so um, I think diversifying the legal profession is extremely important to have people who come from different backgrounds who can articulate what it's like to live in some of these circumstances and help inform policy in all of those systems to improve them so that they're not uh, producing such disparate outcomes for um, people of color. Thank you, Mr. Howard, for the important work that you're doing over at the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico, upholding our rights that are enshrined to us in the Constitution. And uh, just thank you for being here. Yeah, uh, Uzera, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, I have such admiration for you young people getting involved on this level, and I'll look out for uh, great things out of you in our community in the years to come. For Generation Justice, I'm Uzair Hamad. Thank you, Leon Howard, for all the things you have taught young people. I feel like getting into social justice is such a big deal and should be a part of everyone's life so that they can get a bigger picture of the world. I understand how hard times are right now, and I want to say thank you for sharing information with us in order to stay safe. Safety is a number one priority, and I believe you are doing a great job sharing your valuable information with us. Again, thank you for coming on to the radio show and sharing your wonderful knowledge with us. Thank you so much for the work you do and talking with us. With everything going on in our city, having clarification is so important. I didn't know about the Mobile Justice app, and it's something that I will be sure to tell others about. So thank you for your perspective and sharing this valuable information. This next song was chosen by Leon Howard. Here is Hate It or Love It by The Game, featuring 50 Cent. Let's take them back. Uh-huh. 
coming up, I was confused. My mama kissing the girl. Confusion the curse coming up in the cold world. Daddy ain't around, probably out committing felonies. My favorite rapper used to sing, check, check out my melody. I wanna live good. She said I sell dope for a four finger ring. One of them go ropes. Nana told me if I pass, I get a sheepskin coat. If I can move a few packs, I get the hat. Now that'd be dope. Tossed and turned in my sleep that night. Woke up the next morning, she's looking to go my bike. Different days, same day, shit, nothing good in the hood. I run away from this gift and never come back if I could. Yolanda Montoya Cordova is a board member for Albuquerque Public Schools, or APS, which is the largest school district in New Mexico and one of the largest school districts in the country. Ms. Montoya Cordova is the secretary for the Board of Education, and she represents District 1 and Albuquerque South Valley. Now, my co-host, Gianna Ramirez, speaks with Yolanda Montoya Cordova. This is Gianna Ramirez with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Yolanda Montoya Cordova, Secretary of the Board of Education for Albuquerque Public Schools. Ms. Montoya Cordova, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this interview. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I'd love to. My name is Yolanda Montoya Cordova. Uh, I'm a native of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Grew up in the South Valley. Uh, attended all of the schools in the South Valley. I was uh, started out with Kit Carson Elementary, Ernie Pyle Middle School, and then a graduate from Rio Grande High School. I also attended the University of New Mexico, uh, got my undergrad degree here. It was predominantly in education. I focused on deaf education and special ed. And then uh, for a short period of time, moved away and lived in El Paso, uh, Texas where I subsequently went to uh, graduate school and got a master's degree in social work. So my background is predominantly in uh, working in children's mental health issues, adolescent health, and uh, program development. Thank you. Give us an understanding of what the Board of Education is responsible for. You know, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I was fortunate enough to be elected into uh, this position to represent District 1, which is the South Valley, which happens to be my community where I grew up. Being a board member, a school board member, is really an important task because it's an opportunity for the community to have a voice and representation on decisions around public school and how the school district is going to operate. Uh, there's, uh, there's seven of us, and we're responsible for reviewing policy, budgets, and uh, helping to guide the district overall in some of its decision-making on how to operate our public school system in Albuquerque. The fall semester for APS officially starts this week. Mm -hmm. um, please give us an explanation of the APS reentry plan. The reentry plan was something that we had to develop in response to a request from public ed. So all public school districts were required to come up with a strategy of how we would operate uh, given the pandemic. It pretty much proposes three scenarios. One, the red scenario or a full online scenario, meaning that infection is still too high in the community and we need to remain in a virtual learning environment. The second is a hybrid model or a hybrid approach where we might be coming back into the classroom, but we would only come into the classroom 
one if infection rates are low and they're down, but it still means that there's still a rise or there's still concern about COVID. And so the entry would be um, a hybrid approach of meaning we might not bring everybody back all at the same time. And the plan describes how that would be done. We would have, you know, half of the student body, like 50%, because we would go with like maybe A through M for the first part and then the rest of the alphabet for the second part. Um, and what APS is proposing is four days on in the classroom and then the next week the students would be home while the other students are in the classroom with the whole intention of trying to, to keep uh, that social distancing and making sure that we're not creating spread. And then the third option is just full blown, you know, like school as normal, we call it the green. Um, and that's the goal, right? We all want to make sure that we can get back into a school uh, environment where it's face to face and students can be back together we can have our teachers and we can have that robust day-to-day -day interaction of what we know public schools to be like. So the plan outlines those three types of scenarios and gives ideas of how they would work. Yeah, thank you for that information. We know that you have a background in working in public health, but I'm curious, who are the scientists or public health leaders that are informing and working with APS during COVID-19? So that's a really great question, Deanna, because the way that the Board of Education, as well as the staff at APS are, are getting uh, their information or their guidance is also in partnership with the Department of Health. And so the governor's office and the state agency, the Department of Health, are also informing and giving guidance around what we call a gating criteria. And that means like it's giving us guidance around what we know of what the infection rate is. Uh, the governor just had a press conference, for example, and Dr. Scrace, who's with the Human Services Department, sort of outlined what it looks like in our community right now. So for schools, for public schools, we rely on those scientists that are doing that. So the Department of Health is made up of epidemiologists, it's made up of medical doctors, infectious disease control folks who are experts, who are watching that very closely. And I'm pretty proud of our state uh, because I feel like they've done a really good job of being transparent with the community about where our spread is. I think our governor has done a good job of telling us, yes, we can open, no, we have to close, and has given us a lot of good guidance on how you know, we as citizens can play our part in addressing this pandemic and what's happening and giving us an idea of where those hotspots are because there's a wonderful dashboard that tells us how many tests and where our hotspots are in our city. So that's the information that we're relying on as a school district to help us with our decision making as well. Yeah, the transparency and information has definitely been clear and important in our state. So how will schools be held accountable for ensuring that they are compliant with the safety measures set by the CDC and also the state of New Mexico? It's important to know that that reentry plan has all of those uh, guidances in place for principals and teachers. It outlines what our expectations are, but some really important expectations that we have 
is making sure that teachers are wearing a mask, that they're, you know, that we're putting social distancing in place, frequent hand washing, and not coming to work if you're feeling sick. Um, but we're also going to be doing some health checks uh, with young people as well. Um, the students as they're coming in, doing temperature checks and making sure that they're healthy and well. And for students, when if they do show up and they're not well, or a teacher shows up and they're not well, we're also setting up like isolation rooms so that we can isolate them and make sure you know that they can go out and get tested. Um, and once they get tested, making sure that you know they're not coming until they're cleared. And if we do have a positive, closing back down, doing the quarantine. So following all of those processes so that we can assure that we're not going to create a spread um, in that school and, and infect other kids. You know, I'm really concerned about that because this is education and it's not just like impacting one young person or one teacher, it's impacting that school community. And so we do need to work together as a community to remain healthy, to put good practices in place you know, and just that social agreement that we're going to take care of each other by wearing our masks, being socially distanced, and following the guidance that's being given out nationally about how we can protect ourselves and protect our neighbors. So I attended the last school board meeting, and I wanted to know how much of an impact did student and teacher input have in making your decisions? Oh, man. Um, I know for me personally, and I can speak for myself, as a board member, I can't speak for the entire board. Um, that's one of the agreements that we have as being a board member. I don't you know, represent what everyone else does. Um, what I can tell you is I really appreciated the numerous emails that I received from teachers, students, community members who were concerned and reading their concerns um, definitely had an impact on me. I was listening to what they were saying and what their concerns were. Um, as you were attending that meeting, I'm sure you heard each of us individually sort of state our concerns. You know, like, you know, we're hearing from our constituents. They're not feeling confident. They're still a little nervous and worried about it. And I think by listening to those concerns, what it does for me as a board member is it helps me to direct my questions back to the staff. Um, to help address some of those concerns. So, for example, um, I did have some questions about will there be enough protective gear, PPE, on site? How is that going to happen? So I directed that question so I could make sure that if people were listening like you, that they could see, yes, she did listen to my emails. Or asking questions, what are we going to do in the event of a positive, you know, student or teacher on a campus? What about the HVAC system? So um, I'm the representative for my constituents, and so I need to listen to their voices and then make sure that I'm bringing those questions forward uh, during a board meeting. Yeah, thank you for that answer. So as we know, Black, Indigenous, and POC folks suffer a higher percentage of COVID cases and death. What is APS doing to ensure race equity is at the forefront of your decisions? You know, that's a really difficult question because it, you know, it's larger than just APS, right? I mean, we know that social determinants of health are really critical. I work also as the Deputy Secretary for Workforce. 
solutions. And what we're also seeing is there are a number of people that don't want to go back to work because they have underlying health conditions. And underlying health conditions definitely seem to be higher in our communities that are marginalized. Um, I think it's a lack of access to health care. It's a lack of access to good food, access to, to good health promotion. And so from a school board perspective, we want to make sure, one, that we have access to good uh, school nursing, uh, I think is really critical so that if a student is showing up and not feeling well, one, we can address that. I think the other thing that um, we put in place too, and I'm really excited about this because this is a state initiative, is really changing how families can get access to like Medicaid, TANF and SNAP programs all in one stop. And so APS is going to be one of those one-stop uh, places to be able to make sure that we're also addressing that, that lens or that need for access to social services. I'm a public health walk on the, on the back end. School health is important. Um, so I do know that part of what we're also doing with this pandemic is making sure you know, that we're attending to the social emotional needs as a result of this trauma. Uh, we know some families, especially our families of color, have really been impacted a lot harder. Families are losing jobs, so they're really concerned about food insecurity, job insecurity, and that just creates a whole hardship um, that could also create some major disruptions for family life. And so with the reentry plan, there's a huge emphasis on social emotional learning and making sure that we're connecting first and foremost with families and students to identify what their needs are first before we just jump into the academics. Um, so that's gonna be the whole core or nexus of everything that they're doing first. Teachers are gonna be required to talk to parents, meet their students and sort of build that relationship and identify where the needs are and the gaps are so that we can connect them with those other social services um, that hopefully we can find and create with our community partners. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So talk to us a little bit about the personal level of responsibility that is being put on education administrators and educators now that we have to live with COVID. Oh man, you know, as I received the emails from teachers and administrators, you definitely can hear the pain in their hearts around the fact that they can't be face-to-face -face with their students. I think education is about relationships and it's also social and it's a very emotional thing. Um, I think that's why it's been so difficult for us in our country as we're trying to redesign how we think about education and how we go about doing this. And I think it's really painful for our teachers and our, you know, and our principals and administrators because they know they're having to give up a part of the way that they've always done things. And I think they're so worried about that relationship loss with parents and students. And so I do worry about that part for them. Um, but I also hear from them a sense of hope. There's a, there's a glimmer of hope and enthusiasm for like, how can we make this better? You know, we had to go so quickly when the pandemic first hit, we moved people out, we just got kids home. And you know, it was a crisis. And so I think APS rose to the occasion on that crisis. You know, there was a lot of things that we did well. There's a lot of good lessons that we learned. And so the administrators, the principals, the teachers, everybody is looking at those now 
and saying, how can we make this experience better? Because we know we're going to have to shift out and we're going to have to be online and virtual. Uh, but we want to make sure that we're still able to do something, you know, to give a good quality education and good quality connection to our students. Um, so I hear them feeling sad, but I also I also see them rising to the occasion um, and wanting to come up with strategies that are going to work. Yeah, this time has definitely brought some new challenges, but that hope can definitely have a lot of benefits and sometimes outshine those challenges. I agree with you 100%. You know, that's a great summary. You know, and we as citizens just have to have that same sense of hope, right? It is hard and it's been tough, but I'm happy to hear you say that because it gives me a sense of hope too that, you know, young people are going to feel hopeful with us as we move through this. Is there anything else you would like to add? One thing that I would like to add and, you know, have the community understand is that, you know, the first and foremost important um, thing on our brains or thought in our brains right now as a school board and as a school district is that health and safety of our children, our students and our staff and the community. Um, we know how important education is to the well-being of our children. We know that and we love that and we really want to foster that. What I love most about APS is our diversity and our diversity of our programs. And yet it's also become one of our greatest challenges as we're trying to put in a new way of doing school because it's hard to take all of that diversity and put it into this one process, you know, virtual learning and how do you still keep all of those wonderful programs? How do we really bring that into the space? Um, but I, I think what I want the listeners to know and understand is we're really concerned about the health and safety of our children. We don't want anyone to, to get seriously ill, and we don't want to lose anyone uh, to this disease because we're either too complacent and we just say, yes, we could go into the classroom or open. And I, I know in my heart, I, I can't do that. I worry about every student as if they were my own child. And I want to make sure that they're healthy and well, and that my community continues to stay healthy and well, and we continue to thrive. Thank you so much for being here. Your position is so important and it's definitely difficult, especially with COVID. And so, you know, this information can be so important for our community to know and get some assurance with just all the craziness going on, but we really do appreciate it. And I want to thank you, Gianna, too, for your um, leadership in this because communication is important and you can have so much impact with young people Right now, one of the concerns we have is just young people taking the virus seriously, wearing a mask, staying socially distanced. And so, you know, your voice and your work on this, on this particular topic can be critically helpful to all of us as we try to assure the safety of everyone. So thank you so much for your leadership in this as well. Thank you so much for that. For Generation Justice, I'm Gianna Ramirez. Thank you, Yolanda Montoya Cordova, for all of your work with young people. I know that health is such a big idea, especially in the South Valley, which is also my home. All I want is the best for the South Valley. So your work speaks volumes to me because I am a native New Mexican and I grew up in the beautiful South Valley. I wanna say thank you for advocating for the youth. Thank you again, Yolanda. 
We want to bring you some music with a message for all of us dealing with COVID and education. Here is Fearless by Lost Sky featuring Chris Linton. I am restricted, fixed upon the web. I need to kick the habit that my mind is breathing in. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank our guests, Leon Howard and Yolanda Montoya Cordova. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Kater Zuni, Barbara Ramirez, and Roberta Real, with editing support from Riaza Likuzai. And special thank you to our interviewers, Yuzer Hamad, and my co host, Gianna Ramirez. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We are also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlist on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Konamo Health Foundation and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last songs of the night include Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2, followed by When the President Talks to God by Bright Eyes. I'm Gianna Ramirez. And I'm Milian Cordova. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, New Mexico. Make sure to get the Mobile Justice app and stay safe as we head back to school. When the president talks to God, are the conversations brief or long? Does he ask to rape our women's rights and send poor farm kids off to die? Does God suggest an oil hike when the president talks to God? When the president talks to God, are the consonants all hard or soft? Is he resolute all down the line? Is every issue?